The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran some vegans like eating burgers and fries anything that doesn't run swim or fly others are into whole foods plant-based nothing processed will be on their plates And all together, we're gentling the earth and just might save the future for whatever that's worth. Hey, I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Program. So happy that you're with us today. And that little ditty really introduces my two guests for this hour. After the break, we'll be talking with Marty Crudelo of Marty's V-Burger Restaurant in New York City. Marty plans to outjoint the burger joints, including the ones with arches. And my first guest, Chef AJ, is about health and ethics and really making this world a healthier, happier place. So together, we're in this wonderful, wonderful vegan movement. We are colleagues, even when there might be different things on our plates. I can get along with that. How about you? I'm sure you can. Chef AJ has been devoted to a plant-exclusive diet for, get this, somebody finally beat me, over 41 years. And she is the most recent inductee into the Vegan Hall of Fame. She is the host of the television show Healthy Living with Chef AJ and the author of one of my favorite cookbooks, Unprocessed. It also has one of my favorite covers. It's a portrait of a potato. Lovely. As well as her best-selling book, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss. She is online many, many places as the real Chef AJ, and she is also the real deal. Welcome to my friend, Chef AJ. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. That was lovely. It's so great talking to you. Well, it's great talking to you, too. So you are out there with a pretty new book that's already a bestseller, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss. Well, come on. What are they? (laughs) vegetables. You know, the secret, truthfully, the real secret is is something known as calorie density. But if you understand calorie density, which literally means calories with a given weight of food and how certain foods have either a high caloric density, like oil and animal products, or a low caloric density, like fruits and vegetables, really, at the end of the day, that's the secret, eating more fruits and vegetables. 
And you've been doing this for such a long time. Now, I think I went vegetarian 49 years ago, and that was weird. I didn't even hear about vegans for three or four years after that. How on earth did you even know to be vegan 41 years ago? Oh, how did I? You know, I... I... So I was attending the University of Pennsylvania in 1977, September. I was 19. I was a freshman. And I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I joke and I say, but instead I became a vegetarian, actually technically a vegan, because the very first day at work, they assigned us to work for veterinarians. It's That was a work-study kind of scholarship. And the very first day on the job, he hands me a tank of live salamanders. And he says, I need you to cut their heads off. And I'm like, I'm, I was a very squeamish person, mind you, like even like when I had gone fishing with people, which I, I didn't like because I got seasick, but like, you know, like putting a worm on the hook or the the barbaric practice of even fishing. Like I, I was just a squeamish person. And I was like, well, why? And he said, well, we're doing protein lens regeneration experiments in the amphibian and we only need the eye. And I didn't want to do it. But back then, we didn't have Neil Barnard and PCRM, you know, telling us we didn't have to do these things. And I thought if I didn't do it, I'd flunk out of school. So I did it to one poor defenseless salamander, and I still feel bad to this day, and I couldn't do it again. I puked my guts out. I went to the student health, and I said in that moment to God that I would never eat, wear, or, you know, harm any creature of his again. And I didn't. I mean, not not knowingly, obviously. You know, I'm not saying I don't, like, you know, step on a bug accidentally, but knowingly I didn't. And that's really what happened. So I became an instant ethical vegan uh, without even knowing that there was a word for it. Now, um, I, I did some things that I could have done better because I didn't take my health into account, which is why I'm such a passionate proponent of healthy veganism, because I want people to understand that while it's true, the animals don't care why you're not eating them, you too are an animal and your health matters. And if you are a vegan advocate, then you want to be healthy so that you can be speaking about this for a very long time. So I ate a junk food vegan diet for the first 26 years. Now, before you go on, um, AJ, yeah. how, how did you put two and two together and decide that uh, dairy products and eggs would harm animals? Most people are just like, you don't kill anybody to get those. Yeah, you know, I, I was pretty fortunate that I knew that I was, it, I, I know now that I'm allergic to dairy. Back then, I just knew that it always made me sick. So that wasn't so hard. And eggs, you know, that kind of always disgusted me because one time Archie Bunker said on All in the Family, um, he was, Edith, his wife was going to make tongue for dinner. And Archie said, I'm not eating tongue. I don't want anything that comes out of a chicken's mouth. Give me a couple of hard boiled eggs. And I kept thinking like eggs come out of a chicken's butt, which they don't, they're actually the period. So it wasn't hard for me not to eat milk or eggs. What was hard though, is a food addict not to eat desserts that were made of these two things. You know what I mean? So I guess there was a little bit of cheating going on at the beginning. Yeah, oh, that held me up. Uh, you know, I, I would go back and forth and I'd, I'd be vegan for a while or I'd be vegan at home or I'll be vegan till I went on an eating binge. And yeah, it was, it wasn't necessarily, although I have to say my cheese addiction was, was, you know, the size of Alaska. So cheese was a big thing, but it was mostly that stuff that was hidden in all the junk food. And of course, when I finally went vegan, I used to say it's a great protection against baked goods, but it's not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. It's not so a gay tell us, tell us your story. What happened? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, like and so, and so I don't want to be seen as like this, this vegan that's bashing all, you know, comfort or junk food. 
I, I just tell my story because I actually ate junk for the first 26 years of being vegan, even before, you know, Gardein meat and the Impossible Burger and Daya cheese was even invented. We didn't have vegan junk food. We didn't even have vegan food really in 1977. <laughs> well, we did. We had fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and yeah, seeds. We, we had potato chips. We had planters, peanut bars, uh, and, and we had uh, Coca-Cola and yeah. Diet Coke. Guess I, what? I knew them all well. And I had all of those and I, and I was vegan. Right. And, uh, so, so I ate these foods for 26 years and they pretty nearly destroyed my health because first of all, I got to up to almost 200 pounds, which for a five foot six person is obese. But more than just that, I actually developed what they call pre-colon cancer. And I couldn't figure out because like I wasn't eating any meat or cheese, all the, you know, the things that we know are linked to colon cancer, but I wasn't eating food either. I don't think I ate a single fruit or vegetable till I was 43. So I think people need to find a balance. So now we have these vegan foods everywhere. I mean, you could get them at 7-Eleven and are they delicious? Absolutely. Do they do they save animals? Absolutely. Are they as good for the environment? Well, they're probably not great because they're still made in a factory and they still have packaging. But the thing is, is are they going to compromise your health? And so that's why I'm passionate because for me, they did. Yeah, I, I completely relate. So then what happened? So then when, what how happened? How did you it, see the light? Right. So so after I saw, well, you know what? It, it, it's still even though I saw the light, it took a long time for me to turn it on and keep it lit. So in other words, because I had no idea back then that I was really suffering from a food addiction to refined foods like sugars and flours, but I started making changes. So the first change I made after going to a place called the Optimum Health Institute is I stopped eating sugar and flour. And that in itself was a tremendous help. But what I started eating was mostly fruits and vegetables. And that's what really allowed my body to heal without the drugs and surgery that I was told I was going to have to have. So I really started eating food that came from a plant instead of the foods that were manufactured in a plant, which mm -hmm. was what I ate for the first 26 years. And I had my share of Coke Slurpees. That was my breakfast every day. Oh gosh, I haven't thought about a Coke Slurpee in a really long time. <laughs> and that's a, a good thing. But just like you, Chef AJ, I remember going to LA when my daughter was uh, six, five or six years old. And we discovered Ethiopian food, which she fell in love with because you get to eat it with the bread and not with utensils. And they made this amazing dish called Goman, which were these exquisitely spiced greens. I had never eaten dark leafy greens. I mean, I'd had spinach, I'd had broccoli, but I was basically a brown food vegan, which was really common back in the old days. You know, there was a lot of macrobiotic influence. There was a lot of super cooking and, you know, kind of brown burgers and lentil soup and brown bread and granola. It was all kind of brown. And at that Ethiopian restaurant, discovering greens, it just opened up a whole new world. What Aren't they delicious? I mean, it's, it's me neither. I didn't have anything green until I was 43, and now I practically can't live without them. Yeah, yeah, you do get a little bit addicted to the green, too. So you've got the good food going on, a lot of vegetables, but you also identify as a food addict. So Absolutely. Tell us about that and how one gets over that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to actually be one because once I found out it was a real thing, I knew that something could be done about it. So I don't know if you ever really get 
over an addiction, but I think you can certainly manage it and manage it very well. And so the thing about addiction is there's only one thing that's actually been proven to work for whatever the addiction is, and that's abstinence. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't like that because if what you're addicted to is sugar and flour, then the treatment is to abstain from that. And that's really hard for people, especially since sugar is in pretty much every processed food out there from baby formula to geriatric formula. Even if you smoke cigarettes, God forbid, there's there's sugar in there now. And everywhere you go in the world, whether it's the pet store to buy your dog a leash or the hardware store to buy some nails, guess what they have at the register? Candy. Dogs don't eat candy. I never quite (laughs) understood that. So it's kind of an environmental disease that was given to us by the processed food industry. It didn't used to exist. Nobody Nobody that doesn't eat sugar and flour becomes a food addict, just like no one that chooses not to drink alcohol, even with the gene, becomes an alcoholic. And so the thing is, is moderation doesn't work very well, at least not in our country where so many people are overweight and obese or suffering from a lifestyle disease. But I will tell you that moderation never works works for an addiction, but people don't like the concept of abstinence. Now, for me, it's bliss because I think it's a lot easier to do something 100% of the time than 99% of the time. And I just set real clear boundaries and it's non-negotiable for me to have sugar and flour. And as long as I do that, every day is a good day. And I enjoy my food so much, Victoria, fruits, vegetables, but the whole grains, oh my God, and the sweet potatoes that I eat, the ones from Hawaii and the ones from Japan. I mean, I love my food and I'm getting so much more pleasure now from my food than when I was stuck in the pleasure trap. Now, you know that I also identify as a a food addict in recovery. In fact, this month is my 36th anniversary of both uh, veganism and my last binge. And I have a theory that, you know, I know a lot of people, many of them not vegans who say that they're allergic to sugar. And I'll sometimes say, oh, you eat sugar cubes. Well, no. Okay, cough drops. No. Tic Tacs. And they look at me like I'm crazy. What they're really eating is a sugar-fat combination. It almost seems like you've got to get those two things together to really bring about the addictive response. Do you agree with me on that? Absolutely. Because if you think about it, Victoria, in nature, you never see sugar with fat or sugar with salt or fat with salt or sugar, fat and salt. These these exist separately. And it's only when we put them together that makes them hyper palatable that makes us not be able to stop eating it. Because you're right. Most people aren't. Twizzlers are not usually the problem, you know. Mm. Yeah, I get it. I so get it. So what do you do today and how do you counsel those that you work with uh, to leave food addiction behind them and go on into a happy, happy, healthy future? Right. So it's going to depend on the person and how motivated they are and how quickly they want to make changes. If somebody is facing a lifestyle disease where they're going to have to perhaps go on insulin medicine, you know, insulin diabetic medicine, then maybe they want to go faster than somebody that's maybe pretty healthy, but maybe 20 pounds overweight. But so the first thing I do with a lot of people is instead of taking away their drug, the sugar and flour, we try to get some good food in them. Because the truth is, is they're not eating a lot of fruits and vegetables if they're, if they're suffering from food, sugar addiction, most of them, or food addiction. So what we try to do is before we take it away, because 
people have such a hard time with abstinence. They'll say things like, oh, well, if I can't have this, I'll want it more. And of course you will if you're an addict. So how about we get some healthy food in you? How about we we, we learn maybe to, to have things like, like a smoothie, like a fruit smoothie or a green smoothie so we can get them some nutrients in their body. Because the truth is, is you don't have cravings when you're not micronutrient deficient. And so if you start eating some healthy food like fruits and vegetables, you can really start dialing down some of those sugar cravings so that eventually they can learn, hopefully, to, to abstain from them. Or they could go to a place like our mutual friend, Frank Sabatino's place in Florida, Balance for Life, or the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, or Dr. Nathan Gershfeld's place in Yorba Linda, the Fasting Escape, where they can actually do a period of therapeutic water-only fasting or juice fasting so that these foods that we want them to eat for health and longevity and recovering from food addiction will actually start tasting good fairly quickly. That's so exciting. I love this. I love this. And since you did mention uh, Dr. Sabatino and, and Balance for Life, I just want to do a shout out. I think Longtime listeners know Dr. Frank. I try to have him on every year right after the first of the year when people are kind of looking at resolutions and things like that because he's so cool. And this January, early in, in January, the 5th through the 9th, uh, at his Balance for Life Center in Deerfield Beach, Florida, the National Health Association is going to be having a wonderful retreat. I'll be there. Dr. Alan Goldhammer will be there. And so we'll put the URL for that on the show notes at, at Main streetvegan.net, along with all the information about Chef AJ, about my next guest, uh, Marty Crudelo, or you can just Google Balance for Life uh, National Health Association Retreat. It would be so cool to see some of you guys there. So go ahead, Chef AJ, keep healing us. <laughs> I can't wait. You know, I'm going there myself in March, and, and we're both going to be speaking together next June at the NHA conference. We are. So that's going to be exciting. Yeah, the National Health Association. People, you know, I, I always push the American Vegan Society because it's been around since 1960 and was there when there was no other support for vegans. And the National Health Association, which used to be the American Natural Hygiene Society, which was founded way back in the 1800s. I mean, it's the longest lasting plant-based health organization on the planet. So I just think there's some gravitas when these folks have been around for a while. You bet. They're such inspiring people. You know, you had mentioned you thought you were vegan the longest, and so did I until I met the president of the NHA, Mark oh, Huberman. Yeah. He was who, who born was actually vegan. <laughs> yeah, he was born vegan. So he's got he's got about I think sixty some years. Wow, and, that's and, that's so cool. So AJ, I do want to ask you about this little area of controversy. There are some beautiful vegans among us that I love so much, but they're not probably happy about this conversation that they're having. We're having. I, I believe, as I understand their point of view, it's that veganism is about ethics. It's about compassion, and people's body size is their own business. And why are we talking about this? Yeah. Well, you know, I I, I I respect that. And, you know, I've got to tell you that I've never, I've worked with probably over 3,000 people now. And at the end of the day, I've really never met at least a woman that was at a greater weight than she knew that she was capable, like meaning like, 
you know, that, that, that was really happy in that body size. I mean, I know we talk about that, but, but when you really get them behind closed doors, they don't feel their best. And partly because maybe they don't feel they look their best and it doesn't mean they're not wonderful people and deserve our respect. But I know that that's something that they, when I talk to people really one-on-one, that that's something they would like to change. And I think when you're an advocate, or even if you're not an advocate, I, I didn't make up the way people act in the world, Victoria. People do judge us on our appearance. It's not right, but I don't think as long as we have eyes, that's ever going to go away. And I know that as somebody that really wants to motivate as many people as possible to be vegan, really at the end of the day for the animals, that if I don't look and feel my best, the others are going to judge me on that. And and I've seen that happen with people that are trying to make a real big influence in the vegan world where people have said unkind things like, well, if that's what the vegan diet is about, you know, then, you know, I don't want to be vegan. And it's mean, but it's true. And I've seen it time and time again. Now, did I lose weight because I, I cared what those people thought? No, it's because I was actually very sick and I, I needed to for my health. So, um, you know, I don't have the answer. I just think that the problem isn't so much the body size. The problem is the foods that the individuals are eating to get to the, that body size. And those foods are health compromising. And as somebody who has been vegan for over 40 years, I have lost vegan friends who were ethical vegans who were trying to make a dent in this through to lifestyle diseases like cancer, heart disease, and diabetes that very likely would not have occurred if they were following a healthier version of the vegan diet. And now, so that's why I feel, you know, again, it's not I have just, I'm, I'm the host of a, of a global summit called the real truth about weight loss summit. And I interviewed 24 medical doctors and they're not wanting to body shame people, but they said there really is no such thing as healthy at every size and that you really can't be healthy when you have excess body weight. So again, I didn't make up anatomy and physiology. I'm just going by the research, by the experience and you know, nobody has to lose weight for me, but if they want to, I can certainly help them doing it vegan and help them recover from food addiction vegan. And that's my purpose in the world. Yeah. Well, this worked for you and it worked for me. And, you know, we know that it's worked for some other people, but there are a lot of people whom I trust and whom I believe who say, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, that this is obviously very complex and that there are other issues at play. And um, also that it gets into uh, not just body shaming, but health shaming that, oh, well, that person wouldn't have gotten sick if they'd eaten a better kind of, of vegan diet. And, you know, this makes me so sad. You know, I'm looking like, when will I be 70? Ooh, 16 months and I'll be 70. And, you know, that's when people start, you know, really kind of looking at, wow, I'm not going to be around forever. I don't know what's going to take me out of this world. Something will. And I sure hope that when it happens, people won't be saying it's because I wasn't the right kind of vegan. What do you do with all that? Well, you know, I, I wish this is where I think you should have Dr. Doug Lyle on your show to ask, because I don't have the answers to those questions. But when you say it doesn't always work, I've never seen calorie density not work. Now, is it possible that there are people that can't apply the principles for maybe 
psychological reasons or, or things of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. But but the vegan diet has never not worked for weight loss. If I mean, for example, they've had over 30,000 patients at True North. Everybody there loses weight. You know, so, so that I don't necessarily agree with. But, you know, that's tough because people, this is our species, unfortunately. People shame, people blame. And I think that uh, for people that are not for veganism, they want to find fault with the diet and say, yeah, well, they wouldn't have died if, you know, but who knows? Nobody knows when we're going to die or how we're going to die. And it's not about when we die. It's about the quality of our life now. And I know that eating a health-promoting vegan diet will make most people feel their best and look their best. And to me, that's how you enjoy life. Amen. So I have one last question for you. I know that I could talk to you all day, AJ. Yep. But I've, I've run into some people lately who are like, well, I can only lose weight on keto. And, and some people have said, you know, I'm doing vegan keto or I'm doing vegan keto, but I added back egg whites. What is this keto thing that is hypnotizing people these days? Right. Well, all I know from the experts that I interviewed for the Real Truth About Weight Loss Summit is that it absolutely does work for weight loss short term, but you're compromising your health long term. And if, the, if somebody wants to take that risk, you know, that's their choice. So just because, you know, you could have chemotherapy too for weight loss. I mean, I'm told that works great. And, and you know, you could probably cut off your arm and lose, I don't know, what does an arm weigh? 10 pounds. But it, the thing is, is so many people have said, it just doesn't work. I can't do this. And then we've sent them to a place like Frank's Balance for Life or Dr. Goldhammer's True North. And, you know, when somebody like that, that has seen 30,000 patients can tell you from his clinical experience that it's never not worked. And so I need to see what these people were eating that didn't work. So, you know, yeah. I just wonder if they're doing the same diet that I'm doing because anytime somebody lives with me, you know, even when I have, I have a guest visiting now from Argentina, everybody that lives here eats tons of delicious food, but yet they go home leaner. So I don't know what to tell you. Is there a magical vortex at Balance for Life in Santa Rosa? Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe is it possible that they're not really complying with the dietary style that is truly recommended? Yeah. I don't know. In, in our last minute, uh, tell me what you eat every day. Oh my God, I eat so many potatoes and sweet potatoes. So it's almost lunchtime here. So I'm going to start out with some vegetables because I like having the veggies first so that I get enough. Today's probably going to be Brussels sprouts. And I like them steamed, but I also like them roasted with balsamic vinegar and mustard. I, I, I dress them up from time to time. And I'll tell you, my favorite lunch is just roasted sweet potatoes, either warm, cold, even room temperature, or even better when I have time, putting them in an air fryer so they get crispy. Mm. So that would be, I don't really eat breakfast. I'm, I'm exercising in the morning. I'm not hungry. And then dinner is a soup, soup, stew, salad, something from one of my books and over some grains and a large salad and fruit for dessert or fruit ice cream. I eat very well. I eat large quantities and regular people eat my food and enjoy it. Ha <laughs> ha. AJ, you, you are the best irregular person I know. <laughs> I you. love you to pieces. Thanks Same. for everything. Everybody, I know you already know this woman. She's totally famous and she's a great social media influencer. Uh, but if you don't know her yet, check her out on Facebook, uh, chef.aj1. Uh, she's on Twitter, The Real Chef AJ. Uh, and the books are fabulous. In fact, your house dressing, I just make it all the time. So I guess oh. now it's my house dressing too. Thank and, you. Uh, <laughs> wonderful people doing wonderful work. Stay with us. We're going to be back with the burger to top all burgers. Stay with us.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first take an account of what we're feeling those sights that we're seeing those sensations that we're experiencing and each breath that we breathe notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations let your breathing find its own rhythm as we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation. Remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archives section at unityonlineradio.org. Have you ever performed a random act of kindness? In a beautiful new book called Write It On Your Heart, Unity employees make suggestions for random acts they've tried or received themselves. The book includes 40 ways to express kindness or compassion and has room to journal about your experiences. It's the perfect gift, and you'll want one for yourself, too. Look for Write It On Your Heart at unity.org shop. If you're looking to deepen your spiritual journey, Unity Magazine is your go-to source for information and inspiration. It's been beautifully redesigned and packed with interesting articles and compelling interviews from today's spiritual thought leaders. You'll find science, spirituality, and healing with a look at Eastern philosophies, meditation, as well as completely new ways to interpret the Bible. Plus, reviews on the latest spiritual books and music. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Discover what your dreams are trying to tell you. Join dream expert, best-selling author, and hypnotherapist Kelly Sullivan Walden for Ask Dr. Dream every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Central. Kelly will awaken you to the wisdom of your dreaming mind with expert interpretation as well as introduce you to fascinating guests. Each week, you'll get information you can use to help make decisions and gain greater self-awareness. Join the show live or listen later on demand here on unityonlineradio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. 
Hey, everybody. Whenever I hear that intro music and the coming back after the break music, I am reminded that somebody wrote that song. Somebody's singing that song. And it, it's Rob Mills from the UK and his band. And the song is called Vegan Girls, G-I-R-L-Z. And if you want to see the YouTube that goes with that, uh, just check it out. It's uh, pretty good music. I'm so grateful that uh, it gets to be part of our show. I am just back from the great city of Chicago, where we had a pre-screening of A Prayer for Compassion. You know, A Prayer for Compassion is the film to introduce vegan living to people who identify as religious or spiritual. We're in pre-screenings now. We're going to be premiering uh, late February, early March. It should be out there in the world for everybody to get to see, so stay tuned about that. The blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net comes from Colleen Gray Hewitt, and it's called Rise to the Occasion, Plants Equal Prostate Health. So if you're a guy or if you know a guy, uh, do uh, take a look at that. Get some great tips on uh, helping prevent uh, problems with with prostate cancer and and other issues that um, affect so, so many men in our society. Uh, And I have a big announcement. I'm so excited. Thursday, November 15th is the premiere of the History of Food on CuriosityStream, which is an online documentary streaming service from the founders of the Discovery Channel. This is a five-part series. It's not vegan. It's the whole history of food. And we all know there's a lot of meat in the history of food. But in part five, they interview at least one vegan. I hope lots, but I know about one, and that's me. I'm very honored to say that I am uh, going to be, and I don't know for how long, maybe 10 seconds, but I am in episode five, which is called The Future of Food. Um, And I'm so thrilled that the smart people at Curiosity Stream decided that veganism is a vital part of the future of food. And you and I already knew that. So uh, I have Marty Crudelo right here in my living room, and we're just kind of huddled together over a uh, snowball microphone. And it's fun. I love having in-person people. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you, Marty. Marty has been on the show before. He was a commercial airline and charter pilot in his first incarnation. And um, he used to blog, Marty's Flying Vegan Review. And when he was doing that and still flying a lot, he realized there was no real fast food in the vegan space. So after retiring, he moved toward his dream of getting good food at the lowest possible cost into the hands of as many people as possible. And after years of pop-ups and food festivals, Marty's V Burger opened on East 27th and Lexington Avenue in New York City. And Marty can now be found working at the store sometimes and full times working on the scalability of opening the next 5,000 Marty's V Burgers. Welcome, Marty Crudelo. Good to be here. That's my dream, (laughs) 5,000. I love it. I love it. That would just about be enough to blanket this country, and uh, then you could retire again. I I, I like retiring. Yeah. I I could do it all day long. (laughs) So you're going to be in in stadiums this summer? Yes. We um, we, we sold at the Brooklyn Cyclones at uh, MCU Park in Coney Island for the last eight uh, games that they had there. And it was a, a big success. We did a vegan day there and then the, the regular fans actually tried the food and liked it. 
So we've been invited back, and we're also uh, talking about maybe getting into another major league ballpark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are doing the uh, Brooklyn Winterfest right next to the Brooklyn Museum, uh, starting on the 23rd. Oh, that's wonderful. It's interesting. You talked about regular fans. Chef AJ talked about regular people. And I always hear people at Starbucks asking for regular milk. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe we need to start seeing ourselves as regular. As not irregular. Yeah. And certainly that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get the people who like drive-thrus and and burgers they can get their hands around into doing that vegan. I'm trying to get everybody in my store who eats, basically. (laughs) And vegans uh, tend to find vegan food no matter where they live. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We don't have to advertise to the vegans. They have a way of finding the new vegan places. What we are finding is that our target market is really anybody who wants to eat less meat right now, meat reductionist, and whether that's an ethical reason or an environmental reason or a health reason, people are looking now to eat less meat more than they ever have been before. And if we can get them into the restaurant and give them a first bite of the burger and we show them that we don't eat uh, tree bark and leaves anymore, They'll come back. We have a we have a great return ratio, and uh, I'm firmly believe that we're going to change the world through food, mm. and we're doing our part. Yeah, and you and you're doing it beautifully. So I knew you for the years leading up to the opening of, of Marty's V Burger, yes. and you have a fabulous burger that you created yourself. And yes. I know you market tested that, and you went back and forth, and you worked and you honed to get Marty's V Burger being a fabulous burger. And concurrently, some of these great big companies like like Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger came along. And you being the big hearted guy that you are, you serve those at your restaurant too. So what are the relative merits of of the more manufactured kind of burgers and the more artisanal? Well, there's a couple of factors. First of all, I'm I'm a capitalist at heart. And I piggyback on the marketing that Impossible Burger does and the Beyond Burger because they're pretty brilliant uh, in in what they're uh, trying to affect. They don't market to vegans, but that's one of the ways that we get the regular people, the the omnivores, into the restaurant. They they see their marketing and then they uh, come in and and try it. Uh, Our goal, of course, is to try to get them to try our burger, our in-house burger. Um, I... I'm so happy that Impossible and Beyond came along. I don't think there can be too many uh, alternatives for the person who's looking to continue to eat the way they eat, but change the way they eat. And um, there are a lot of people who are vegan who do not like um, anything that reminds them of their grandmother's meatloaf or the fried chicken that they had when they were growing up. I am in the other camp I love to find things that can emulate as closely as possible the things that I don't eat anymore because I don't eat animals. I don't eat animal products. I don't, it's, it's, to me, that's how we make this transition to people, for people to, to enter into the vegan sphere, so to speak. I love it. So Marty's V Burger obviously has burgers, and there's some other stuff in the menu, too. Tell me sure. some of your favorite things. Sure. Well, we, we have our own burger. We have the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger. We make that two different ways. We also have a Krabby Patty. We have uh, drumsticks with different sauces. Which Your drumsticks is, are really good. Thank you. And, th- and that's gluten-free as well. So 
the Krabby Patty's gluten-free. We have kale salad. We have mac and cheese. We have fries, which I think are the best fries in New York City. But we also have cheese fries with our cheese sauce. We have chili fries. We have chili cheese fries. We have mac and cheese. We have chili mac. So um, we also have a couple of specialty sandwiches. We have a, a Cajun um, uh, cheesy pepper steak, which is a hero sandwich or a grinder or a submarine, depending on where you're from. And we also have uh, a holiday wrap that we just came out with that I literally dreamt of one night after I ate it. It was just the, the taste of Thanksgiving with all the spices and the herbs and the stuffing and the, 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 the chicken that we put in. It was, uh, I dreamt of it. It was just amazing. Oh, wow. That sounds really good. Yeah. So what's your very favorite item? On your menu. Um, this is sort of like a Sophie's Choice question because <laughs> um, I, 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 there's nothing on the menu that I don't like. Um, I, I would have to say that our Double World Famous, which is the emulation of a classic fast food burger mm-hmm. with um, our, our patty, uh, special sauce, pickles, cheese on a sesame seed bun. <laughs> um, the Double is one of my favorites, and I like the spiciness of our... Uh, Cajun cheesy pepper steak. Okay, that's great. Now, I love it that you're smiling and you're excited about the food and the restaurant when I know that you just might be in the toughest business on earth. So for all the people listening who dream of having a vegan restaurant, maybe a burger place, maybe a super upscale, maybe a something else, tell us the down and dirty. What does it take to open a restaurant and what does it take to survive in this business? Well, the first thing it takes is money because um, you're not going to be making uh, enough cash flow generally to support the restaurant and the investment that you make and the the loans that you take out. Um, You also need uh, to find a day with 25 hours in it because you will never have enough time. Um, You you, uh, have uh, an infinite amount of issues and, and problems that uh, you find occurring. Uh, even today, uh, on the way over here, I, I found out that our restaurant has a, a leak in the ceiling. Um, we had a fire two floors above us that uh, a couple of weeks ago poured water into the restaurant. Um, so it's just, it's, it's whatever you think can go wrong, double it and it will go wrong. But I am still absolutely amazed when I look at people who are sitting in the restaurant eating the food that we've created and have a great team. You, uh, you just can't do it by yourself. I have a great chef, uh, uh, David, and, uh, and I have a great manager now, Sarah. Uh, you, just, you just can't do it by yourself. Um, and I look at people who are eating the food that we create, and they're smiling, and they love it, and they come back. And that, in and of itself, is such a reward that that makes it all worthwhile. So if you're thinking about opening a restaurant, don't but do. (laughs) So I remember it took you a long time to open your restaurant. And and I've heard this with other people. Is that just a New York City thing or is it a lot of trouble anywhere? I was actually thinking about this coming over here. And my general contractor, who is the person who's basically coordinating the whole project, he hires the plumbers, he hires the sheetrock people, he hires the electricians told me that in New York City, and maybe other places too, he says, it's the Wild West. Once you tear down a wall, once you, you do demolition, uh, you find that there are other issues that nobody knew about because they were behind a wall. 
And now you discover things aren't up to code. Now it's your responsibility to bring them up to code. And now you find that there's uh, one of the previous tenants might have cut a supporting beam and, and you have to stop construction while the landlord comes up and re uh, buttresses up the floor. So um, it, it, it took us 18 months from the time we signed a lease until the time we got the door open. So does that mean you're paying rent for 18 months before you've sold a burger? Not all of that time, but yes. Wow. So people really need to be monetized more than they think they do. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I know you did a lot of pop-ups, festivals, stuff like that. You still do some of that. Yes. So um, how important is that? And is that a great way for people to get started? I think it's a fantastic way for people to get started. I think that especially if you have... Look, there are a lot of places, and, and I love them too, uh, that put out other commercially available products on a bun and sell it as a burger. Uh, that doesn't need a lot of market testing. But if you have your own products, or your own baked goods, your own uh, burgers or entrees, it's a fantastic way to get feedback from, the, from not only the vegan community. We did New York City Vegetarian Food Festival uh, every single year since we started. Uh, and that gives us vegan feedback. But when you do pop-ups at just general winter markets or summer markets, you get the feedback from the general public about whether they're going to come back or not. And people say, yes, it's good, but if they don't come back, it doesn't really matter. So that's where you really put the rubber to the road on, on all of these, these pop-ups um, that are open to the general public. So what does an omnivore generally say about a vegan burger? What do they say that's good? What do they say that's not so good? Well, <clears throat> I think that the, the bar that they're comparing my burger to is exactly what a ground beef burger would taste like to them. And <clears throat> we've come close. We've come pretty close. But we haven't come 100% to replacing what animal products taste like and, and feel like and mouthfeel. And personally, as a vegan, I don't care. I'm happy with the, with the food that we have. Uh, but what we do see is people saying, I couldn't tell that this wasn't a real burger. Once again, with real people, real burgers, and you know, <laughs> irregular people. But what what people say is, if I didn't know, I wouldn't know that this was a vegan burger. And and so, it I guess it depends on the person who's actually having the experience, um, and what their expectations were. If they just want good food, we we have that. If they want exactly the same thing that they came in the door to not eat, then they're not going to get exactly an 80-20 beef burger. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a very big difference, too, if you're just eating a burger with a knife and fork versus if that patty is in the bun with the pickle and the sauce sure. <laughs> and whatnot. Sure. makes a big difference. Because I, I think especially for Americans and, and, you know, maybe in the U.K. too. I remember going to the U.K. as a child and there were these places called Wimpy Burgers mm -hmm. all over. And it was just so much fun to just go and sit at a counter and hold a burger in one's hands. And, and that's kind of an experience. Well, one of my goals was to have a burger, fries, and shake. Mm -hmm. Because we're really a burger joint. Mm -hmm. We just happen to be a vegan burger joint, but yeah. we're a burger joint. And fast food, and our goal is to get the food out as fast as possible. Some of the specialty items slow the line up a little bit. But we're still pretty much on target for that. But uh, to have that experience of uh, when you were a kid going and having a burger and fries and, and a shake 
is exactly what I wanted to recreate. And I think we've come pretty close to doing that. I think you do too. So what are your long-term goals? I know we talked about the 5,000 restaurants. What's between now and then? Sure. 5,000 is a nice round number. I once went to a boot camp for uh, uh, venture capitalists and I told one of the VCs that that was my goal. And he said, how about you get to three first? And call me then. <laughs> so our goal uh, w- with the, the one, uh, possibly two ballparks that we're looking at um, is, is actually opening up two new restaurants for us. Um, the, the winter market is opening up a third. Um, so we're going to be straining at the seams. The, the goal is to be able to scale this up. It was designed as a scalable project. Uh, it is a scalable project. So we just need to put the infrastructure and the financing in place to be able to go to the next, uh, the next uh, level of development. I had always said, well, maybe Fort Lee, maybe Long Island City, um, maybe, maybe uh, Brooklyn. But uh, Long Island City now has Amazon coming. So... Who knows what the neighborhood rents are going to be like in, in <laughs> yeah. you know, five minutes. So. You could come up here to Harlem. I could. I mean, it would be wonderful. You know, I know that you're very good friends with the, <coughs> with the people who started Season Vegan. Sure. That place is so busy these days. I mean, the lines around the corner. Yep. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's not unbelievable because it's amazing, it's fabulous. Season Vegan has soul good food. food. There, no place that has good food. Uh, should be doing anything other than really well. You know, I mean, even the location, I mean, we say in restaurant businesses, location, location, location. But even if you're off the beaten path, people will find you and, and you should be doing well. But, you know, Season Vegan is, I, I love Season Vegan. Yeah, they're, they're fabulous. So you gave me a, a few quotations here and these are wonderful. I think you should frame these and hang them around your restaurants, all 5,000 of them. <laughs> You say things like, um, we will change the perception of veganism through food. If we get the omnivore to choose to eat a vegan meal once a week, it's the first win in the war. It's not the goal, but it's a good first step. You also say, and I want to ask you about this one, I believe veganism can solve almost all the world's problems. How's it going to do that? Name a problem. (laughs) Name a problem. We, We have... We have poverty, we have hunger, uh, we have a, a, an unequal distribution of wealth, which is why. Why do we have people raising crops who can't afford to buy the crops? Uh, I, when I was a, a kid, I went to a summer camp. It was a work camp, and we, we were up in Nova Scotia, and we met with people who fished for herring, and they couldn't afford to eat the herring that they caught to put on the market. We have people in Africa raising crops that go to Europe to feed the cows and they can't afford to eat their crops, and we're bringing water in where there's no water for those crops, but the people don't have water to drink. This is like craziness. This 16 pounds of grain to make one pound of beef, we can feed 32 people with with that amount of food. It's not a direct correlation, but of course, we can feed people who are starving, and if you're you're hungry and you're thirsty, if you're not hungry and thirsty, you don't want to fight. You don't want to Go to war because you're happy. We can just name name a problem in the world. I think that if we move towards this way of of living, of of treating animals, of of eliminating cruelty, of eliminating exploitation, then there's no outcome other than a positive world that that we can look look at. Sorry. <laughs> ah, that's ex- 
and you know, Marty, you're not the typical vegan. I mean, uh, it's very interesting to sit down and, and talk with you. If I didn't know you were a vegan, I would just think you were a regular. Regular guy, you're a guy's guy, you're not a teetotaler. Uh, you know, you're a regular American person. Veganism spoke to you. Why you and why not millions and millions and millions like you? Well, uh, today I'm an unapologetic vegan. I think that there's no reason why people can't go vegan now. Um, I also realize that that's not really a pragmatic outlook. Uh, it, it's a desire I have. Veganism crept up on me. I didn't like discover it. I became a vegetarian because I used to smoke cigarettes. And in my small male brain, I said, I have to find something that I can do to offset the smoking that I'm doing. Of course, there's nothing that you can do to offset smoking. Uh, and a cousin of mine said, hey, I'm a vegetarian. Fish is my fallback. I, I feel great. My stomach issues went away. I said, I could do that. Um, I gave up my steak and my chicken and I exchanged it for mozzarella on Carosa and Doritos and I got sick. <laughs> and I was started to do research about why I was getting sick and what I should eat. That's really when I started cooking and making my own seitan. And I, you can't do research about food without finding out about the animals. And uh, I was actually thinking today when we used to eat chicken, it was a chicken. It wasn't that chicken. It wasn't, mm. it was just a bird. It wasn't that, but what happened to that bird? It's just chicken. Um, and, and so slowly I, of course, this was, uh, I've been vegan for eight or nine years, nine or 10 years, July 4th, I use as my vegan anniversary. And I was vegetarian for 18 years before that. So <clears throat> I have 26 years altogether. And I was just a child being in my forties, but the, uh, thirties, but, but the information available today has not, it's just exponentially different than what it was back then. So it, it, it slowly, I, I, I started eating differently. Um, I, I don't really follow a whole food plant-based diet like I should, but I'm, I'm not a vegetable Aryan. I'm, I'm just a, a, a guy who doesn't want to exploit animals and, uh, I've changed my diet that way. And, and, and at one point I just said, I'm, I'm only eating seafood. I used to work on a boat when I was a kid in mm -hmm. the cheap said Bay. And I said, I'm, I'm, o I'm only eating uh, shrimp and, and clams and, uh, and honey. And I said, w w is my life really going to be any different if I don't eat shrimp or clams? And I no. So I gave them up. And then honey was the discussion in my head. Uh, if I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. Um, today it's a different discussion because it is using animals for production of something that they didn't make for me. But back then it was, um, I'm not going to have the discussion about why honey would be okay. And everything else wasn't. So I just said, honey's included in everything else, and I gave that up. And that was the day I turned vegan. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. So you say something else here that's um, fascinating. You say, we have to learn to get along with people who don't agree with us. And I certainly think that's absolutely critical, especially right now in history. And yet it's really hard for us ethical vegans because we're trying to get along with people who are supporting an industry that breaks our heart. How do you do it? Well, you take that deep breath, I guess. And um, uh, a lot of people in my circles don't agree with me politically, um, but that has nothing to do with 
the ethical beliefs that I bring to the table. Um, and I don't try to change people's minds um, about uh, a lot of issues. Uh, uh, veganism is also see seen by some as an all-inclusive movement. And I'm more, much more focused about let's just concentrate on not eating the animals. Let's, let's not eat the animals and then we could worry about everything else. Okay, you may, you may not believe in climate change. You may uh, vote on the other ticket, but let's talk about the food. And, and if I can bring them into my fold with health, I'll do it. Uh, a lot of people have had heart attacks and, and everybody in my family in their 50s had some kind of a cardiac event, except me. Um, I'm not saying that causation and correlation are the same things, but there's a lot of people who are diabetic and who have heart problems who we can, we can point to research and say, this is a way to change this aspect of your life. I'm not trying to change everything else you believe in, but let's stop eating the animals. That is a great place to start, for sure and certain. So, in our last minute, you got a burger that's going to change the world? My burger. <laughs> the, the Marty's V Burger, original, world famous, will change the world. I love it. And I think that your wonderful attitude will change the world, too. I'm in a mastermind group that has a restaurateur in it. And, and the rest of us are not in that business. We, we don't know what we're saying. But we were kind of telling him what it's like to be a customer at a restaurant mm -hmm. and how much it means when the owner comes by when you know that somebody's there who really cares about what goes on. And I know you can't be in your restaurant all the time, but I know you're there sometimes, and it is just so special. Thank you. So thank you so much. Anybody coming to New York City, be sure and stop by Marty's V Burger, 27th and Lexington, and uh, maybe you'll get lucky, and Marty Crudelow will be there next week on this program. Be her singer who founded the term animal rights. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.